I, uh, if this was a night congregation, typically what I would do was ask for feedback. But what happens at night is we actually rope off the back half of the church and force everyone to sit towards the front. So it's a little bit easier and we don't have a video running at night. So I'm not going to ask you to call out your answers, but there might be all sorts of answers and I'd be really curious to know what some of those were. Great faith might be um, supporting a certain football club that's not won a premiership for 60 years or whatever it might be. Uh, but I, I suspect that your conversations might have been a little deeper than that. Let me just run a couple of stories past you as we introduce the passage that we're going to look at today from Hebrews 11. The first one is the story of a fellow I met quite a number of years ago. Probably, goodness, I don't know how many years ago now. Uh, he lived in the same city, he attended the same church that I was attending. I was not the pastor of the church, just a, a member. And this guy was determined to live by faith. And so in, in living by faith, he decided never to get a job. He would just walk around the streets sharing Jesus with people. And so he did. And if uh, a Christian happened to go past, he would... Uh, quickly latch hold of them uh, to the point where most Christians who knew him in town, if they saw him coming, would run the other way because almost inevitably um, he would come along and say, I'm having a great day, you know, have you got $20? I need um, some lunch. Or he, he actually pressured people, Christian people, into supporting his living by faith. And so I was kind of asking the question, is that, is that really living by faith or not? No, don't answer the question because... <laughs> No, no, no. Don't answer the question. I'm just putting these questions out there. I'm allowed to do that, right? Um, here's another story. Um, another friend of mine uh, who, had chronic, who has chronic fatigue syndrome. I visited him and prayed with him on many occasions. We did some very uh, intensive prayer work in that space. And it just seemed that nothing much changed. And then one day... Uh, a lady who was something of a self-proclaimed prophet came into the town and she gathered around herself a number of disciples, some of whom were members of our church and they decided that um, in, in light of this special revelation that God had given them, they would take Ian on as a project. Whoops, I've said his name, sorry. Um, they would take this guy on as a project so that they could demonstrate to the stagnant church uh, the power of the Holy Spirit that was at work. And so they did. They got to him. And he was keen, like this guy had been sick for a long time. And when you've had CFS for 10 years, you do just about anything. You'll explore any option, any opportunity, any avenue for healing. And they took him on as a project and they prayed with him and they did this and they did that. Nothing changed. And so they concluded in the end that the problem was not them. It was his lack of faith. Don't say anything. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about this mysterious and sometimes uh, perhaps misunderstood thing called faith because we've come to uh, what is known by some in Hebrews as the hall of faith. I'm not everyone's happy with that title but uh, this idea, Hebrews 11, is this enormous montage of people through Israel's history who, who the author identifies as men and women who demonstrated great faith. And so as we go through it, we're going to uh, just think about what faith is, why the 
author to the book of Hebrews has included this chapter, why he's included this great spectacle of faithful people, what purpose does that serve and how we too might be encouraged by that. In context though, the author has over this, through this book of Hebrews and it's been, um, it's been a bit of a job to preach our way through it, the author has been constantly emphasising the superiority of Christ, that Jesus is greater, hence the greater than sign that's on the back wall. Someone in the military said to me the other day, I don't get that sign, it's actually an emblem that's used by one of the tank companies in Australia. What does that mean in a church? Well, it's not that, it's the mathematical symbol that Jesus is greater, greater than Moses, greater than any of the prophets, greater than the system that has been at work uh, because Jesus ministers in a heavenly sanctuary that earthly priests performed sacrifices year in and year out, but the sacrifice performed by Jesus was complete and is making all those who believe in him holy. And then in the passage that Matt looked at last week, there was a shift from the theology of the book of Hebrews to encouragement and exhortation, the call to persevere. And the author was really saying to the recipients, in light of all of this important information that I've given you, in light of this evidence that Jesus is the great high priest who ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, who is leading his people to a Sabbath rest, don't give up. Don't get slack in your faith. What an important message there is for us. Because even in this post-COVID period, there are people who are still just kind of drifting along, drifting away from relationship with God. People who were perhaps once on fire in their faith. People who were once enamoured by the things of God, ministering in in a really powerful way, and yet they've turned away or they've grown cold. There's much to be said for the encouragement of this passage, not to turn away. And then uh, the passage that Matt was looking at last week, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19, 22, The author said, therefore, in light of all this, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, because Jesus is the priest who enables that to happen, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the kicker, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So what is faith? What is it that qualified that person that you were talking about a few moments ago as a person who had or uh, a person who evidenced strong faith or great faith? Well, faith is a word that we use all the time, isn't it? and not just in uh, a Christian context. Let me give you a definition to work with. This is not a perfect definition, but it'll start us off. Faith is the conviction that we have that somebody or something will be able to act for us or on our behalf. Pretty straightforward kind of definition. Let's demonstrate that with the use of this chair. You were probably thinking that I was feeling a bit tired today, and I put that there just so I could have a rest, but it's not for that. It's for illustrative purposes only. What does a chair do? Nothing. It sits there. It doesn't move. The chair that you're sitting on was there last week. It didn't move through the week. It didn't have a party while we were not here. It just sits there. But this chair can act for us. Because if I demonstrate faith, faith, the conviction that somebody or something can act 
for me on my behalf. I'm going to demonstrate faith by sitting on this chair. What is that chair going to do for me? Are you confident it can do that? So far as I know, there's no reason why this chair can't do exactly what it's intended to do. And there you go. My faith has been well placed. And you exercised faith when you sat down on the chair this morning. You exercised faith when you got in and turned the engine of your car on, that it would actually go. You exercise faith when you buy something online, that what you actually click on is what you actually will get. And of course, the corollary of that is, if it doesn't actually happen, then your faith has been what? It's been misplaced. It's been put in the wrong place. If I was trying to find, and I couldn't do this, which is actually a wonderful testimony to, to this church, I couldn't find a wrecked chair to put up here this morning. <laughs> And, and demonstrate how faith can be misplaced. Just while we're thinking about this, though, too, faith uh, is this conviction that we have that somebody or something will be able to act on our behalf. Faith has also always got an object. Think about that. The object of my faith in this case is the chair. You can't say, for instance, and I've heard people say this over the years, and it's kind of interesting, sometimes I get into a conversation with somebody and they'll say to me, what do you do? And I'll say, well, I'm a minister of religion. They say, oh, really? And I can tell straight away that they are looking for the quickest way to find a, a different direction in the conversation. All right? And so they will say something, and this has happened on more than one occasion, they'll say something like this, oh, that's interesting. Well, I'm a person of faith too. I always want to ask them, Faith in what? Because faith always has an object, same, in the same way that love always has an object. You don't see somebody, uh, let's pick on Emily for a second. Um, Emily comes in this morning, young teenager. She walks down the aisle. She's got this lovely smile on her face, which is normal. Her eyes are all kind of uh, misty. And you say, Emily, how are you today? She says, I'm fantastic. I'm in love. My next question, her parents are shocked to hear this too, by the way. <laughs> My next question will be to Emily, oh, really, who are you in love with? Oh, no one, I'm just in love. And we would say, what is wrong with you, girl? You can't be in love with nothing. Love requires an object. Faith also requires an object. And so uh, let's refine, nuance our definition a little bit. Christian faith is this conviction and we can substitute words, if you like, strong belief, firm persuasion or assurance or whatever word you might like to use, that God will act in a manner that is consistent with his character, promises and his word. Now, I've deliberately kind of squeezed my definition down to something fairly simple for the purposes of this message. But there's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Faith is this conviction that God will do what God set out to do. Is that characteristic of the person you were describing? That person had a posture of believing that uh, God was good to his word, that God is good to his promises, God is good to what he has set out to do. True? Not true. I'm not getting any feedback. Um, I hope that was the case. So just hold that in mind because this is the kind of faith that the author to the, uh, the recipients of the book of Hebrews wants people to have. This conviction, this strong conviction, this unshakable belief that God is able. We sing songs about that, don't we? You are stronger, you are stronger. We just sang that a few moments ago. It's this conviction that God is able to do what God promises to do. 
there's the foundation of faith. And that's what the author is encouraging the recipients to, uh, to grow in. Let's have a look at um, the passage, and I'm just going to highlight some of the verses. There's a little definition here at the start. The author begins with a definition of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's an interesting definition. It's not a complete one, and the author didn't set out to do a complete definition, but it's a good start. Because, again, at the beginning of this passage, the author wants the readers to understand that faith is this conviction or, or vital certainty which impels the believer to stretch out a hand, as it were, to lay hold of realities on which hope is fixed, which, though they might be unseen, are already theirs in Christ. I can't see heaven, and yet in faith I believe it's already mine. It's a reality that God has made for me and for you. There are things that we can't see physically, but we're able to reach out and lay hold of by faith. This idea that faith, um, faith interacts with the visible and the invisible is actually um, illustrated in verse 3 where the author says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You see how this knowledge and faith are not mutually exclusive. They actually work together. This is an important point. I don't want to drill too far down into it because a lot of people set these up in opposition with one another. You're either a person of faith or you believe in science or knowledge. Well, that's not true. The two actually go together. The author of the book of Hebrews was writing to people who understood that God created the world out of nothing, creation out of nothing. That's a doctrine that we would affirm. And so what is seen actually gives testimony to that which is unseen. Keep that in mind uh, as we keep going. Uh, as we advance through the passage, we meet Abel. Who remembers the story of Cain and Abel? How long did Cain hate his brother? As long as he was able. You've heard that joke, I'm sure. Um, we don't know from the, uh, the Genesis account why it was that when they brought their offerings, one was acceptable to God and the other wasn't. Cain brought a meat offering, Cain brought grain offering. That's not made super clear in that ancient passage. Uh, the author here to the book of Hebrews gives us a bit of a clue that it actually might have, actually, it may have, the, the fulcrum, the, the centre of what was going on might not have actually had anything to do with the offering per se as much as the heart with which it was brought. And so here we have uh, the statement, by faith, Abel was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. A righteous man is a person who, whose heart is right in relationship with God. And by faith he still speaks, and this is a bit of a kicker, even though he is dead. Because Abel was a man who clearly demonstrated faith, and what happened to him? His brother murdered him. So let me just put a little rocket under anybody who wants to teach you that you just need to have faith and life will be fantastic and wonderful and go well for you. Take the story of Abel by way of example. Well, it didn't go so well for Abel. But here's the thing. If you're one of the recipients uh, that the author is writing to, you are in a, a context of persecution where some people, perhaps that you even know about, have lost their lives because they're Christians. But the testimony of faith goes beyond the grave. The story of your life, if lived in faithfulness to God, outlives you. 
And there are a great many characters through history, and we're going to meet some of them here, but others too who are unnamed in this passage, whose testimony outlives them. The story of Enoch, if we keep going into verse 5 and 6, Enoch, the story of Enoch's one of the great shining jewels in the crown of the Old Testament. Don't you just love the story of Enoch? Enoch was a righteous man who walked with God, and when it came time, God just took him away. How good would that be? No? I've talked with lots of people who, who articulate the fact that we know where we're going. You know, we know that we will be with the Lord. This process of getting there is a bit frightening. What's death going to look like? It's a bit scary for some, well, for many. And Enoch, he was just doing his thing and the Lord took him away. How good is that? He was commended, the author of the book of Hebrews says, as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. God always rewards those who earnestly seek him. And this observation would have impressed the original recipients who were asking the question, is it really worth enduring in this difficult space? Is it really worth pressing on with this faith? Isn't it easier just to go back? No, the author says, look at Enoch as an example of someone of faith. Let's jump through a couple more. Noah, uh, Noah, his faith was uh, ultimately vindicated because it condemned those who no doubt had much fun at his expense. There's been lots of movies made about Noah and the way that he was working on that ark and others were standing around going, Noah, what on earth are you doing? You're a rabbit. There's no, you've got no idea. Fair dinkum, you've lost it. But his faith was vindicated by what took place afterwards and again because Noah was looking beyond the visible. And there's one of the elements of faith. It sees something that's ahead, something uh, uh, looking ahead. And we see that particularly uh, in the story of Abraham. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, there's a fairly big chunk given over to the Abraham narrative. And no surprise, because Abraham is generally recognised as a man of faith par excellence in the Old Testament. Now, just remember again, I've said this, the people who were originally receiving these words were in danger of turning back. There was a risk that they'd come so far in their faith and they were at risk of turning back. And so some of what's drawn out in the story of Abraham is done so to counteract that risk or that temptation. Because Abraham was called uh, by God to leave his country and go to a place the Lord would show him. And what did Abraham do? He did that. He actually up and left in obedience to God. He was tenacious in tenuous circumstances and that's highlighted through this passage. His faith is identified as the thing that sat behind him in not building great cities and, and putting his trust in things on earth. Verse 9, I don't think I've got that on the screen. Verse 9 says, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see what's happening with Abraham? He wasn't going to invest in a nice city made out of bricks and stone and mud and stuff. He was looking to something far greater. There's another illustration of how faith is at work. And one of the consistent messages of um, Abram's faith through this passage is that he was looking forwards, not backwards. From verse 13, all these people, and there are a number of others named through this passage, 
were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. You see how this is resonating with the people who were originally hearing this? Don't turn back. Keep holding on to that which is ahead. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's another great title, if you ever want a, a title to wear, that God is not ashamed to call you God. Their, uh, hang on, I've lost it. God is not ashamed to call you his. Does that make sense? Someone want to rephrase that for me? God is not ashamed to know us, to call us his own. Let's jump to Moses. Moses' uh, Moses' story is a really interesting one. I never thought about this until um, just this week, but apparently Moses was a really beautiful child. I don't know um, how it works in your family, but there's, you know, I was raised to be reasonably polite. Sometimes I fail in that space. But, you know, you see a baby, for instance, and you'd look at the baby and say, wow, look at that. She looks just like her great-grandmother. <laughs> or, wow, he's the spitting image of his father. But Moses, the scripture tells us there was something, he was no ordinary child. There's a suggestion that Moses was a deeply attractive little boy. And so when the Egyptian princess happened to come along bathing in the river and uh, Moses was floating by, she looked at him. He, he was not the kind of kid you'd go, wow, only a mother could have loved him. Uh, quite the opposite, because he was taken into the Egyptian court. Now, here's the important thing, and, and you can put aside all that other stuff. Um, the significance of that is that Moses was raised amongst royalty. Moses had everything you could want in life, power, authority, the lovely trappings, the food, the joys, the entertainment, all that kind of stuff. Moses had it pretty good. But then the author of the book of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The temptation for Moses must have been enormous. He could have had a really cruisy life. But his faith saw beyond that and grasped for something else to the degree to which he was prepared to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than take it easy. Again, you're hearing what's happening with the recipients. These are temptations that they're facing. There are temptations that we face too. Uh, because as the author goes on, verse 26, he says, he regarded, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Wow, that's a great example of faith, isn't it? Aspire to that, be encouraged by that. And then the author goes on, and let's run through a few of these really quickly. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptian tried to do so, they were drowned. 
Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell. Can you imagine what people would have been thinking? What are we walking around this city for? How's that going to help? How on earth is God going to use that? But he did. And by faith they persevered around uh, a number of times until the walls of Jericho fell. Rahab, we've talked about Rahab in the past. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed by those who were disobedient. She could see beyond the immediate. She could see something uh, beyond herself. And then if we come to verse 32, it seems like the author, um, he must be kind of working on a word count, I reckon. He's running out of space here because he says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon and Barak. Let me give you this on the screen. And Samson and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. What amazing things. Fantastic. Live like this, people. Grasp this kind of faith because it's so good. It's fantastic because faith has got such good rewards. There were others, for instance, who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. This is good news. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. It gets better. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. So go for it. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's... It, you know, one of the things I love about the scripture is it doesn't sugarcoat. It tells it as it is. Because if you're going to be a person of faith, if you're going to grasp the realities of God by faith, believe that God will do what God has promised he will do, it may not end well. It might mean a road of difficulty. It might mean a road of persecution. This was the experience of those who the author was writing to. And again, as I said earlier, if you want to have a good debate with someone who's going to convince you that, um, that, that uh, this idea of faith in the goodness of God, you know, if you have faith, God will only do good things in your life, vis-a-vis -vis my friend, uh, the prophet, prophetess, um, just direct them to this passage. Does that mean God is weak? Not at all. Does that mean God has failed? Not at all. Does that mean somehow God's lost the plot? Not at all. Because these things are beyond these immediate struggles and trials. Faith grasps stuff that God has. The, ancient look, the ancients looked forward in faith. Uh, the author kind of sums up here in verse 39, verse 40, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Now here the author is kind of saying all of these people look at their faith. They were grounded in the promises of God. They trusted God to be able to do. They were convinced that God would be able to do what he promised. And now we've seen this come to reality in Christ. And so we join with them. Here we are, this great crowd of us who are seeing what God is doing. And so this passage has been included here that we might be encouraged uh, to go forward in Christ. And it's worth um, reflecting on how that actually works. Because I rather suspect if we kept talking about um, those people who you would consider 
to be uh, well grounded in faith. You know that person that you might have been thinking of earlier? The more you think about it, the more you are encouraged. You know, I want to be like that person. I want to aspire to that kind of faith. I want to grow to be like that person. Now, just hold that intention with this. Uh, and I've said this before. Faith is a lot like a toothbrush. You need your own. You can't use other people's. And so you can't just sit in relation to someone else and hope to catch onto their coattails. It's great to be encouraged by others. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He wants to show these examples of people who, who by their faith changed their world. But it's not good enough just to hang on to them. You've got to grow it yourself. And we build muscles in our souls by exercising our faith. I love that little statement too. You build muscles in your soul by exercising your faith. One of the risks, and I'll conclude with this thought, one of the risks with, um, with thinking uh, about this passage is the temptation to say, well, you know what? All of these people, you know, we're looking at some of the, the, the luminaries of the Bible, you know, Abel and Enoch and Moses and Abraham, you know, I'm not like that at all. I'm not like these people who just stepped out boldly and whose world was transformed. I'm not like those people. Um, and I doubt that I could ever be. If that's, the way, uh, if that's the way we respond to this passage, then we're actually missing one of the important points that there is here. Because one of the important points in this passage is that life, the life of faith is normal for God's people. The life of faith ought to be the daily experience of God's people. The whole intention of the author is not to put up this great display of faith to say, look how weak you lot are, but to say, aspire to this, be encouraged by this, because guess what, everyone? They're just like you. Now think about them. Noah, classic case. You know, you wouldn't actually say uh, Noah kicked goals every time, would you? And yet he's named as one of those who had faith. We've talked through, um, through the book of Judges this year. Um, Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, for goodness sake. These people are just like us. And so God calls us with our habits and our hang-ups and our warts and our worries to a new form of action. Jesus calls us to step out, to jump up onto the stage of world history and to take our place in the roll call of God's people of faith. And it may be that God asks you to do something which in the eyes of the world is extraordinary. It may be that God is actually asking you to exercise faith today in the place that he's put you, in your workplace, or in your family, or on your farm, or in your school, or wherever it might be. We might not go against a great army. We might not be called to leave our country or stand against a wicked ruler. But then again, we might. And in the meantime, faith is to be exercised in marriages, reaching out to that which God has promised and trusting that God will work in that space. Faith is to be exercised in the management of our finances, trusting God to provide, working hard, unlike my friend at the start of the message, uh, but trusting that God will provide for our needs and living by faith in that space. 
for it is when we are faithful in the lesser things that God trusts us with the greater things. And of course we're inadequate. We're all inadequate, as was every person named on this list. And yet you and I, as was the case for them, are living testimonies to the grace of God. And it wouldn't be called grace otherwise, would it? Because then it would be about them or about us. But it's actually about God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this great roll call of men and women who by their life of trust and submission and obedience have been known through history as examples of faith. And as we gather today, we are challenged by that because we do sense some inadequacy in ourselves. Lord, how can we ever be like that? And yet, Lord, you empower us by the gift and abiding presence of your spirit to be people of faith. And so, God, grant to us today a vision that's beyond ourselves, a vision that embraces all that you are, all that you have promised and all that you can and will do. Lord, we don't pray for some kind of weird, wacky dreams that are of ourselves. We don't ask, Lord, that we run off on agendas and somehow co-opt you into them. We pray that you would speak to us, that we might know where you want us to go from the point of view of a church, as individuals, as families, but above all, Lord, that we might live by faith, that we might live in total dependence and trust on you with a strong and unshakable conviction that you are God, that you are good to your promises, that your word is true, you have revealed yourself to us, you have great things ahead for us, and that you will reign and rule over all. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence here today. Bless the ongoing work that we have to do as a gathering, we pray. Help us to elevate you in our worship, in our hearts, in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.